Good morning, Antioch. There you are. Um, hey, turn, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. We'll do a scripture reading for this morning and then open in a word of prayer. But Matthew, chapter 13, and we're going to begin in verse 1. So Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. Um, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And it says this, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake and such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up and some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. And whoever has ears, let them hear. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more. And they will have an abundance, and whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak in parables. Um, and uh, go down to verse 18. He now gives the translation of kind of what he was saying in parables. And he says, listen then to, the, to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word but worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. And this is the one who produces a crop, yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Let's open in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning seeking to learn, seeking to grow, and most of all seeking to experience you. And we would invite you now into this place. We would want to open our hearts up. Um, we'd want to quiet the distractions internal to our minds, the distractions that might be external to us, and to somehow perceive what it is that you would say through the Holy Spirit to your church today. So we stand ready to receive in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a series talking about words and speech and communication, and there's this interesting thing, we talked a bit about it last week, but this interesting reality that words... Uh, in some sense, are alive. Um, words are alive. And so briefly, if we want to kind of look at the book of Proverbs, we see something interesting, that truth or the message of God or, or right reason, the things that reflect what God intends for this world, that that's literally a personified thing. So in the book of Proverbs, we have wisdom personified. Proverbs 120, it says, out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. And Proverbs 8.1 says, does not wisdom call out, does not understanding raise her voice, that truth is somehow 
uh, something that reaches out to us, tries to grab us, that is a living and active thing that, that draws us to itself. Uh, John 6, 68, you have an interesting story where Jesus is asking if his disciples are going to leave him because others are rejecting him. Are you going to leave too? And the disciples um, respond, and it's Peter that says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. This idea that, that truth, the message of God, what reflects God's intentions or his glory is this personified thing that goes out into this world, that it draws people back to itself, it calls aloud, it cries for us, and that when we come to it, when we hearken to it, when we listen to it, that it literally, the message of God, the message of Christ, is something that's, that's living. Uh, living water is another phrase that'll come up often. And so we have this idea that the true or accurate words, the message of God, are living things. And that's what we see when we come to Matthew chapter 13. We see this parable in Matthew uh, 13, as well as Luke chapter 8, we see this parable. We also see it in Mark chapter 4, if you want to go look for it there. And the two that you, you get in Matthew and in Luke are part of what's known as the parabolic discourse, meaning the parables that Jesus taught from a boat at the Sea of Galilee. So if you picture it, it's a smaller fishing boat, and it sets out just a little bit from the shore so that the crowds can gather around because you don't have amplification like you do uh, today. You don't have microphones. You don't have speakers. And so this is a way for him to kind of pull everyone together onto that shore, especially as it kind of arcs around a bit, and probably would have talked in a very slow way, giving, giving short stories so that they could be relayed back to, to people that couldn't be right at the edge of the water, might not be able to hear. And so very short uh, things that are packed with lots of information. You literally could take this, this parable of the soils um, and, and of the seed and analyze almost anyone that you've met in your life that has wrestled with faith. I mean, you could talk about this parable for days on end, but when Jesus gives it, it's in a compact form that hasn't really opened up yet. It's one of the reasons why I think he says, the people that are going to understand it and are going to believe it are the ones that yearn for truth. It's, it's compact enough, tight enough. It's not flowered out and opened up and just kind of simplified. So the people that don't really care enough or aren't going to work for it, they're just going to kind of listen and then go on and act as if they've never really heard anything or they're not going to try and um, search the depths of what God might have for them in that, but the ones that are called or chosen or whatever you want to say that way are the ones that are going to sit with that truth for a while and try and let it shape them or sink in and bear fruit in their life. And so this is often mislabeled the parable of the soils. It's actually the parable of the sower. Um, the soil isn't the active thing. The two active things in this uh, this story are really the seed and the one who's sowing the seed. The one who's sowing the seed is actively putting it out there and putting it out there liberally, not, not choosing where, where they're going to sow the seed based on the quality of the soil, but, but sowing it kind of liberally. And then the other active part is the seed. If, if you go to um, Jerusalem, you see this interesting, they have a, they have a uh, kind of a museum that that dates back to the time of Jesus in terms of finding a vineyard. It's one of the oldest vineyards that they've found. And the wine presses, which were really basically hollowed out of rock, and, and they were 
were done in a way that you'd have a little channel so that as you stepped on the grapes, the, the liquid f- would fall into a different basin. And, and you have these terraced, Israel is incredibly rocky, incredibly rocky. Um, and uh, you would have these terraced kind of areas to grow on the sides of hills and they would move the rocks so that you could have good soil and also so that you wouldn't have erosion. Um, so there was parts that were the path there was parts that was the good soil. The rocks would be shaped in a certain way. And this is going all the way back to, to ancient times. And you'll still see the very, very same thing today. And so as you walk along and sow, some of the seed is going to go into the, the good soil, which is obviously your intention at the end of the day. But, but some of it's going to fall on the path that you're walking on that's been trodden. Some of it's going to fall where those rocks are, the retaining walls, so that you don't have the erosion. But, but you're just kind of putting it out there. So the sower is active. This is called the parable of the sower. And then the seed is active. Now, when we look at kind of what it means, um, it's pretty interesting. The, the one that falls kind of um, right on the surface and before it has a chance to, to take root is, is the birds that come and kind of snatch it away. And you see that as well as the rocky soil um, being really interesting in that it never really gets far. The one that snatches it away is the evil one, or in Mark's gospel, it's Satan. Uh, this idea that there's actually a spiritual battle happening to keep you or somebody from receiving, as if good soil, this seed or this message or this word that is, that is supposed to take root in your heart, right? Uh, so the, the soil is really a metaphor for the person here. For, for the heart, for the soul. And so Satan will come. The other one is the one that goes down and you begin to see it grow up, but there's really nowhere for the roots to go. And so as the, the hot sun of the Mediterranean comes out, um, pretty soon that little, that little plant is gonna wither because it really can't go anywhere. Um, and this is, this, is, uh, this is kind of, I think, there's a lot of applications, actually. Um, let me bring in the next one real quick because they, they tie together in my mind. The next one is the one that goes down, and it actually does begin to grow, and it begins to grow really fast, and it begins to look really exciting. But alongside that seed as it's growing are weeds that are coming up, and eventually those weeds choke in because uh, the thing of weeds is they grow faster, and they're more viral in some sense, and they they take and they rob the nutrients that otherwise would be there for other plants. And so they begin to take over. So these weeds come along and choke out, is the, is the biblical word here, choke out what was coming from that seed that had fallen uh, in the ground. These are interesting, um, but they're also so very practical and true. When I, when I was 22 and was, was kind of at that early stages of having a relationship relationship with the Lord, I would get asked questions every night, um, kind of grilled with questions every night in the fraternity um, in, in our dorm. And, you know, what about this, Ken? What about that? Are you really going to do this? Are you really going to choose this way of life? Have you really thought about this? And half the questions I actually hadn't thought about, but I knew what the right answer was as soon as I'd hear the question and I'd kind of just stumble forward like, you know, I guess so. And I'd go back and I'd have to think about it and wrestle with it and I'd search scriptures and, and uh, I started journaling. That's when I began writing. Like I started, not like a diary, but it would just be like writing out my thoughts. And half of them would start, 
I don't know what to say today. I'm kind of, you know, this is hard. Engineering is frustrating me. It feels real lonely that there's no one else to talk to about this stuff. And, you know, it's kind of a lot like this. And, and my mind works in terms of analogies. So I would just kind of banter around and eventually I would hit on to an analogy that, you know what, this is a lot like, and then I'd start writing that analogy and then all of a sudden it would connect to some scripture I'd been reading. And then after about two pages, there was actually something I'd written that had a, had a truth in it for me. Like it had made sense of my life a little bit and it would keep me going. And I'd go back and read it the next day and, and kind of look at it. And the interesting thing is I would find that I was really excited about what I, th- what I thought at the time was some clarity about things that were in these journal articles. So I'd, I'd, I started ha- asking some people to come in and read some of these things. Like, just come in and read this and, and let's talk about it. Like, maybe, maybe you can see kind of where I'm at. Like, it's a little bit easier than trying to verbalize the answer to one of your questions. And some people would come in and they would read it and... Um, and they would just shrug their shoulders and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I went to some camp once upon a time. And, uh, yeah, that sounds a lot like something I was taught there. Hey, that sounds great. Um, I got to run, you know. And it's as, as if they would kind of hear it, kind of act or feign as if they were accepting it, um, but really not wanting to let it penetrate any, anywhere deep into kind of their life or their thinking. That's kind of the rocky swell. Um, we all have people we give advice to, and we look at their life, and they're asking advice, or they want advice, and they certainly need advice, and, and it's so clear to us from our relationship with God that there are things that need to happen in terms of, of the decision-making maybe going on with this person, and if they would but trust God, if they would but follow God or obey God or have faith, then maybe some of these things will begin to iron out in their life. And so we, we try so hard to put a, a, a word of good news of, of what God can do in our lives through Jesus Christ, uh, the, the good news. And we try to put a, a word or a seed in there and, and we try to talk about it and they, they kind of nod and they kind of listen and you think maybe they're hearing you. And within 24 hours or 36 hours or one week, you realize, like, no, they, they actually, like, that didn't go anywhere. They, they, there's no desire to receive that. Um, it's, it's really rocky soil. Um, and, and we kind of get that frustration of, like, man, I have so much I would want to say to you. So much that I feel like I have to say because I love you. But there's always this this impenetrable kind of rocky soil going on. I also had a, a friend by the name of um, Bobby. Uh, and it's been long enough, I don't, and I'm not telling you his last name, that I, I don't think it's, anyways. But his name was Bobby. I did not protect uh, the names to protect the innocent. Um, uh, I loved Bobby. Bobby was two years younger than me and uh, was just a great um, guy, likable, lovable, was kind of the star of the soccer team at his high school. Um, and he had gotten pulled into the fraternity culture and had started drinking heavily and, and was just lost um, where he was in life. And so Bobby, when I called him in or we would go on walks to the, to the uh, cafeteria, by the way, from my window, you could see the trucks that would pull up to the cafeteria back in the 90s in, at Clemson. And you'd see him unloading the boxes of meat 
Um, and, it, and you could see on the side of the boxes, grade D, fit for human consumption. Um, I just needed to get that out as a word of, a word of truth. I hope you receive it. Um, uh, so, so Bobby and I did a lot of talking, and then we started reading Scripture, and then Bobby committed his life to the Lord, and I've never seen anything else like it. Bobby's life changed, instantly changed. He completely stopped drinking. He started working out, um, and over the course of about two months, he, uh, he, was, he was doing his own Bible studies. Uh, he started training with guys on the soccer team, and he had a date with the coach to do a walk-on tryout. Uh, he had been one of the, again, one of the stars in his state uh, when he'd come in uh, to Clemson. We had a nationally ranked team there. And he was all set to do a walk-on tryout, and it hit uh, spring break. So Bobby went home for spring break. And uh, when he was home, he had uh, a couple of people in his family that were ardent Catholics, uh, a couple of people that were uh, atheistic, and he began to share with them about this newfound faith and, and how he'd been kind of growing and all these great things going on in his life. And over the course of that week, everybody argued him down. Um, I don't think it's a natural outflow of Catholicism. Um, I think there's a lot in common. But in that particular setting, they, they were worried that this new faith was taking him away from his traditional kind of um, family upbringing. And so they, they saw it as something really negative and tried to attack it. The atheistic side of the family came along and just said, you just can't know any of these things. Why would you pattern your life, change your life? Why would you put any faith or trust in this? Because you just can't know any of these things. You have to remain agnostic in life. And he got hit by, by so many different people from so many different sides without really any other voice there to try and help prop him up that when he came back from spring break, um, he was a different guy. Uh, he looked defeated, and uh, he returned the Bible I'd given him, and um, he missed his tryout, and he started drinking heavily again. And I remember it was the first experience I had with, with, with this. I, I, w I went to this passage because I'd read the Gospels through, and, and it was fresh in my mind, and I went to this passage, and I thought to myself, um, this, is, this is that. Somebody that grows up so fast and is excited about the faith, but there are other factors in life that begin to choke that out and are stronger than, than what's growing in that person. Um, and maybe that's you. Maybe that's someone you know. Maybe whatever. But these are, these are things we see in real people in our life as we go through. Um, and then finally... The seed that gets to good soil. So picture walk around, uh, walking along a path in, in the ancient Near East and sowing the seed and birds are taking some of the seed. Some of it's fallen on the rocky soil. Some of it, the, the, the weeds have come up and choke, choked it out. But there's some seed that has fallen on good soil. And in time, because everything that, that bears fruit uh, is born in time. By the way, these people that have shallow roots, um, I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that that I see in common with almost all of them, that are willing to hear it a little bit, but never really willing to, um, to go deep with it. There's an assumption that if I cry aloud to God, or if I do a decision today to be obedient, that somehow tomorrow um, life should be better. There's, 
there's this collapse of the idea that it takes time for a seed to grow and to ultimately bear fruit, that the blessings that come from God or, or from walking by faith, they come in time, over time. Uh, it, it's not just this, this ipso facto, uh, I, I sowed seed today, so tomorrow all of a sudden there's fruit. And I, I think that's the hidden part of, of these people that don't have a category for really understanding it or bringing it in. And I see some of that as a byproduct of the gospel they were told as kids. Um, faith for a lot of people in America is simply the belief that God exists. I hear this over and over. Well, of course I have faith. I believe God exists. And I'm, I'm saying, no, that's not what we're talking about here. What I'm talking about is that God has, has met us has prescribed a certain way of living for us that, that has called us into walking by faith and that when we walk by faith, over time, God shows himself faithful and that we get to a point where we would never wanna go back because of what has grown up in our life. That's what, what it means to, to have faith in God. So this is, I believe that God exists. I'm talking about this, that, that I'm actually connected to God and willing to trust that his way of, of, of patterning my life is better than my own way of patterning my life. And so I've, I look at some of this and go, we've, we've shared a bad gospel that lets people go, yeah, 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 I heard that once upon a time. I went to that, that summer camp. Uh, I responded to that preacher. I've already checked that box. God exists. Good enough. Like, let's stop talking. We don't need to go any further. And what we're really talking about is this idea that blessing comes in time as we walk by faith. So this good soil um, teaches us that somehow if we receive or we're receptive to the truth of God, the message of God, uh, the words of life of God, the good news, that, that the greatest of things are going to happen in life. Why? Because it bears power. So I'm just going to give three points of application. Um, this is an application-based sermon. Um, doesn't happen often, but here's three areas of life that I really think we can maybe rethink if we understand that words, spoken words, that words put out into the world have in them a power beyond our manipulative ability, beyond our manipulative, uh, uh, manipulative ability. Um, let me just start by saying, if, if some words have life, um, what, what is the characteristic of the words that don't have life? That don't have life. I think the ones that have life are the ones that reflect God's glory, reflect his truth. They're in harmony with wisdom. They're in harmony with what Jesus came to speak. They're in harmony with the good news. I think we can take a lot of strands of truth and use it a different way. And we, we end up using on this side words of manipulation. We spin things. We tell half-truths, and we end up with a kind of um, mercenary posture. Um, C.S. Lewis used that word a lot. I love using it. But when you're not speaking truth because it's truth or out of a motive of, of putting truth out into the world, but you're grabbing bits and pieces because ultimately you want to achieve some kind of end or some kind of aim for yourself, now you are manipulating your speech, your conversation with an ulterior motive. That's what um, 
That's what mercenaries are. They don't do something for the love of it. They're not necessarily even from the country going to war. They're doing the war or they're fighting because of the pay that they're going to get, the gold they're going to receive. And so when we're using words, not because of the beauty of the thing themselves or in reverence for the truth, but to try and achieve some ulterior aim, we're in a mercenary posture. So I think there are words of death. I think you see that um, all throughout Scripture, that there's certain kind of words in the book of Proverbs that tear down, that destroy. James talks about the tongue can literally spark a, a fire that will tear through society like a forest fire in the mountains here in the Cascades, and that for years you can drive by there and see the scarred or the burned countryside, and that all of that started by one little spark. And so there are words that destroy or there are words that lack power because they're not reflective of the truth or of, of the right intentionality that would be there if we're speaking them as a sower of good seed. So evangelism. Jesus says, uh, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Um, confession. I, I haven't been doing a lot of evangelism lately. I've done a lot in my life. Uh, a lot of it was proximity-based in the fraternity, um, at the gym when I was single and used to go to the gym a lot, when, uh, when I had friends that, that had business jobs, and so the parties that we went to on a Friday night or the football games that we went and watched put me in proximity around a lot of non-Christians. I used to do a lot of evangelism, and I was actually rather good at it. Um, I felt like I had a gift for it, but it was often because I was put in the position to do it by somebody else taking the initiative. Hey, you should talk to Ken. He's got a degree in philosophy. He's smart with this stuff. Or someone making a comment that just I wouldn't, um, I couldn't let go. Like, hey, wait a second. Like, do you really believe that? Or do you not understand that when you say all truth is subjective, that you're making that true, uh, that comment that all truth is subjective, you're making an absolute objective claim in that comment that all truth is subjective. So you're either uh, wrong or you're wrong. But there's no way that you're right. Um, and, you know, um, so, you know, I would, I, would, I would get pulled into things, but usually in a reactive way. And I've been wrestling lately with the fact that I, I'm not, I, I don't have as many opportunities for evangelism anymore. I've got four girls that are coming into teenage years. Um, life is incredibly, incredibly busy. And when I travel, um, I, I'm very selfish with my headphone time. Uh, I don't really talk to the people next to me, and I know I'm not the only one, so you can't judge. Um, but that would be a, an area where I could probably do that. But so, um, and I, I was kind of analyzing this lately, like why, why is evangelism not a bigger part? What's happened with that? And I think it's this. We are under, I have been under the misconception that it's the wisdom of my words uh, and it's the information I'm relaying that is really um, the ball game here. Uh, so I'm presenting an argument for a transaction that these people need to go through. I'm going to give you an argument for why you should be a Christian. There's either going to be an acceptance or a rejection of my argument I'm either going to be right and they're wrong, or we're going to call it a draw, uh, or they're going to get very aggressive and they're going to say that I'm wrong and they're right. But, but it's somehow this kind of competition that's happening here. And nine times out of 10, or 99 times out of 100 in, 
in today's society, people will have already heard of Jesus. They'll already kind of know what I'm getting after here, that I'm preaching at them. Um, and they also sniff out that, there's, that I'm really trying to, to, to get something out of them. Like I'm trying to get a response from them. And so that kind of feels a certain way. And I think I resist going into doing evangelism because I, I, don't, I don't like how that feels and I don't want to be rejected. And I feel like, am I really bringing any new information to these people anyways? And I'm, I'm pretty certain that's probably why most of us uh, don't do evangelism. I mean, can anyone else relate? Okay. Here's what I've been thinking recently um, is that the message or truth, the seed, um, is alive. God's message is a living thing. God's message has power to it. That we don't have to have the persuasiveness of our words, and we don't have to win an argument either, and we don't even have to get some kind of response at the end of it. The discipline here or the faithfulness that we have is simply to proclaim good news, to be light. Light doesn't try to win an argument. Light doesn't try and accomplish some kind of conversion. Light is, is a manifestation of something true. It, it puts it out there. It shines. And if we really understand what evangelism should be, it's, it's telling the good news and, and saying it as if it's good news. Um, good news doesn't usually feel like I have to lose to accept it, right? Or that somehow you have to win for me to join it. Good news is I, I, I get to come along and we get to celebrate and there's no competition involved. And it's a joining and there's not really a transaction where you, you go from the enemy or the other side of the line to on the good side of the line. It's much more organic than that. We are telling a deficient good news, which is part of it. I think we've created an idol out of the gospel. I've come to this firm conviction uh, really over the last three years. But the gospel I was given, even through seminary, was that Jesus Christ died for your sins, right, so that you could be forgiven and have eternal life. We have made an idol out of the transaction of the gospel, the means, rather than the end of the gospel, that God is a relational God and that we are estranged from him and that he really wants us back in that relationship. And Jesus accomplishes the forgiveness that allows for us to be back in relationship with God. We've taken the mechanism and we've, we've begun to worship that. So when we go to do evangelism, we're teaching everybody the mechanism. Here's the transaction you need to do. Here's the behavior you need to go through. And if you go through this behavior, I win. And you know that you kind of got off uh, your stool and, and hopped where I said hop. That's not really the good news. The good news is God loves you. God loves you. And that you know deep down inside that you have been yearning for the love of your heavenly father. That you feel lost or you feel alone. That you feel desperate. That you feel confused. And that in all of your efforts to make your life perfect, somehow it always goes wrong. And you know deep down inside this restlessness in your heart. You know you were made to be loved. And the good news is, is that we can learn about what God desires for our relationship, how he desires for us to live, and the grace that allows us to make mistakes and pick ourselves back up 
This thing is grace-filled. And don't you realize, no matter what you've done in your life to this point, that God still wants you? That's the parable of uh, the, the prodigal son, that God wants you no matter what your story is. And that when you find God, God will walk with you and God will, will wash your feet, as we see pictured in Jesus. And God will, will try so hard because he wants your growth and he wants your wholeness and he wants you to enjoy and to find your full satisfaction in this relationship. Don't you... Don't you hunger for that. Let's keep talking about this, but there's some really good news out there that God loves you and you can find your way back to God. That's the gospel. The Jesus dying on the cross is a part of that story. But when we, when we act like it's the whole story, we're worshiping an idol. An idol is saying we're taking something less than God and treating it as if it was God. We can do that with scripture. It's called bibliolatry. Jesus has all authority on heaven and on earth. It's been given to him. And this book that is true that I submit to reflects Jesus, tells the story of Jesus, but it points us to Jesus. All authority has been given to Christ. If we get legalistic and we, we lose Christ in the process and we just take this as if this is the supreme authority, not serving Christ, but on its own, that's bibliolatry. When we take the story about Jesus on the cross, even though it's true and a part of the story, if we disconnect it from the good news of what God was doing, the, the whole picture, the accurate picture, and we, we, we invest this with all of our love and affection and attention, we've now taken something less than the fullness of God and we worship it. We can create an idol out of spiritual things. The Pharisees did it. Does that make sense? Let me point this out real quick to you through Colossians. So if we jump ahead to Colossians. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Colossians 1, 19 through 20. This is to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. And through him to reconcile to himself back to God all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, all of creation is being reconciled back. The rocks are being reconciled back. Jesus says, if, if I quiet the crowds, the rocks will scream out the truth. Even the rocks are a part of the truth or the true things of God that are coming back to the fullness of praising God. We are a part of creation. We're day six it wasn't that God created the heavens and the earth and then he made people. Like we're day six of creation. So when we're being redeemed, that means creation is being redeemed. Why? Because we're part of creation. Does that make sense? So all things on earth and things in heaven are being reconciled back to God and he did this by making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. How did God accomplish this? The cross. That makes the cross the means, the mechanism. Why did God shed Jesus' blood on the cross? Because he wanted to, to reconcile all things back to himself and make peace through Jesus Christ. So we have to understand that if I say to you, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ Jesus, that that is the full gospel. 
okay? If I say to you, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that is a part of the gospel. Now, I can tell you God was reconciling us back to himself through Jesus Christ and have it stand alone on its own as the gospel. I can also add he did this by by Jesus' death on the cross whereby we were forgiven, and that's now equally still the full gospel. I'm just adding to it. But if I take Jesus died on the cross so that we, uh, we could be forgiven, and I say this is the full gospel, I'm now saying something that's what? It's untrue. I'm saying that a piece of the gospel is the full gospel. And that's untrue. Jesus died on the cross so that we could be reconciled back to God. The gospel, the good news, has to include the purpose for for which God sent his son. That he so loved the world that he wanted to bring it back unto himself. So here's the thing with evangelism. 1 Corinthians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Paul says this, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Evidently, Paul wasn't a good public speaker. We see that in scripture in several places. Like, he, he wasn't a really good public speaker. And he's coming and saying, look, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. They were just coming with the power that comes through the Holy Spirit. For Paul, he was basically saying, I am faithful to proclaiming the word. I am faithful to being a witness of the good news. By the way, evangelism uh, just means, uh, the, the, means preaching the good news. Uh, euangelion is good news in Greek. And so an evangelist is one who preaches the good news. Evangelism is the preaching of the good news. But we're basically storytellers of good news. We tell stories every day. What happened in the supermarket? The lady in front of you. By the way, the, uh, Facebook was made for other things than to talk about what the person in front of you, you know, does in the supermarket, right? But we tell stories all the time. And, and when we tell the story of the good news, it's not our persuasiveness that's the issue. It's our faithfulness. Understanding that those seeds have power. And that we sow them out there and some people, it might be a spiritual warfare going on and it's going to go nowhere. Other people, they might kind of nod their head and smile at us, but it's not going to penetrate anywhere into their heart or their soul or their thinking. And then with other people, we're going to get really excited because somehow this is going somewhere. And we feel like there's a connection, that they're, they're understanding and walking with us into this good news. And then all of a sudden, the good news doesn't become good news anymore. Why? Because the worries of this world become bigger news. And, and they feel like they have to leave this good news because it's going to complicate or compromise the, the truth that they're pursuing outside of God. And it's going to choke it out. And with some people... We're going to realize maybe little by little over time, maybe we'll take years, but they're going to come to faith. And when they come to faith, their spouse comes to faith or one of their children comes to faith or their friend at school comes to faith. And when you forward it years, decades, pretty soon you realize there is so much good that has come into this world, so much light, 
because of that person coming to faith, because of the word or the good news, the message of Christ that I sowed into their life, not even knowing what was gonna happen. It's not how I do it. It's just the telling of the story that matters. And if we understand that, maybe we can get excited about evangelism once again. Maybe it's not the persuasiveness of our words that change reality. Instead, it might be our faithfulness in speaking humble and loving words that brings God's light into the world. Number two, first one's evangelism. Second one is, is spoken blessings. Spoken blessings. Um, having someone sit on your knee if they're a child and, and putting your arm around them or your hand on top of their head and praying a blessing into their life. Or when you're leaving a community and you sit down at a table and you speak a blessing to uh, someone that you've been in relationship with for a long time and you basically uh, take all the truth of what God has revealed to you about that person, the things that you know are good in that person, the, the, uh, the, the little subtle things they do that brings life into the world and you sit down and you just say, hey, I want to give you a word here. God has really richly blessed you. And your patience with people, your ability to listen to people, it is rich and it is transformative. And I see and I know that God is going to do amazing things with and through that. Never give up on that. This idea of a spoken blessing, we know it from Genesis with Jacob and Esau. They fought over their dad's blessing. But in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 5, it says this, the Levitical priests, this is the command for them, they shall step forward for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister and to pronounce blessings in the name of the Lord. In the New Testament, it's not the tribe of Levi that, that does the ministering. In the New Testament, we see in many places that we are now the priesthood of believers. We are now parts of the body of Christ. We now all have the Holy Spirit. We all now have the calling and the opportunity to minister in this world, to be light, to be witnesses that way. And so that means that we have the opportunity to pronounce blessings in the name of the Lord. Pronouncing them not because it sounds cute or that, boy, when I do this, I've got this great phrase and people are going to go crazy with the power of my words. Um, I, you know, I remember working at a Christian camp, and for a while there, it was like this, this competition. We would pray, and it was about a group of 30, and, and different people would pray every day. And it was in the morning we'd pray, and then we'd pray at lunch, and the evening we'd pray. And after a while, I began to feel like, boy, there's real competition of how like, eloquent your prayer is. Like, how naturally can you work the glory of God and, and catch phrases into your prayer? And, how can, and it was really, I mean, it was palpable that, that you had a, a brief window to jump into that prayer train and that if you got it right, there'd be some people that'd be like, mm, mm-hmm, <laughs> praise Jesus. And you'd be like, ooh, that one was good. I got I to gotta flag that. <laughs> that little phrase was a good one. Tomorrow morning when I'm praying with, with a different group, I'm going to throw that one out again. And I'm, I know I'm not the only one. I know you've got some go-to prayer moves. It's just like your go-to dance moves when you go to a wedding, right? Most people have their two or three just to fake it. Um, we have our prayer moves that we go I, I began to realize it's a real thing. And it's not... This, this blessing thing, this speaking words out into the world thing is not about 
the oohs and the ahs. It's about resonating with what's true about reality. It's about, in, in, in humility, speaking back what God is doing, reflecting his glory in our words, not with ulterior motives, not in a mercenary kind of way, but, but just to speak truth back. And we all know, because we are all affirmation junkies, we know we need this. I need you to speak blessings into my life. You need me to speak blessings into your life. We need truth to come in and to bear fruit and to make a difference. And God has called us into this and basically said, words are power, so say those words. Speak them. Isaiah 65, 16 through 17, whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the one true God. Whoever takes an oath in the land will swear by, by the one true God. For the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. This idea of what God is going to do or is doing in the reconciliation of the world as he brings about his kingdom, that a part of that will be that we will look to God and in his name invoke blessings. Blessings, you don't do it for yourself. Who, who prays a blessing over themselves? It's, it's like incoherent with the concept of blessing. So when we have this idea of blessing, it is radically about the other. It, it is radically about how I can bless you and you can bless me and that the, the greatest good for both of us is gonna be bound up in this communal relationship where words of truth, words of life are being spoken and coming about over time to help us be more fully who we ought to be. So rites of passage. Take your 13-year-old, your 14-year-old, bring people around them that have been in their life for a long time and ask those people to speak words into them. What do you see about my child? Give them a nickname. Tell them what you envision in the future. Pray over them. Lay hands on them. Make it a blessing. Nightly prayers. Sit down and do it with your kids if you want when they're young. Um, when our kids were a lot younger, we would put them there early on and just, God, we give this kid to you. This is what we feel like you've led us to, to name this kid for. The, the, the meaning of their name actually is what we feel like you were telling us this child is or is supposed to do. And so we give them back and we pray that that would be true in their life. Now it looks a lot more like affirmation. When we get in the car with the kids, it's saying, hey, I see this in you. When you did that to your sister, here's something true about this. When you did this for your mom, here's something true about this. You're good at this. Not just now, but you're gonna be good at this. And we speak words of life back into them. Third thing, prayer. Um, prayer is an interesting thing. You know, um, for most of human history, reading was an out loud exercise. It was an out loud exercise. Uh, it would be a scroll being read to people. Even through the medieval um, period, it, it was so expensive to copy these things that no one could really own them unless, um, unless you were incredibly wealthy. So you had a class division between the peasants and aristocracy. And, and even the aristocracy, they weren't really into books. It became a real big thing around the time of the Renaissance. But it would be the monasteries that would hold all of the books and be the keepers of the books. And so when things would be read, primarily it was somebody who knew how to read, reading to a group of people. And so it was listening, it was, it was out loud reading in an oral culture. And, and what happened was when books began to pro proliferate, 
and people could read them a little bit more in their native tongue or when the Latin language came back, most books were in Latin, when the Latin language came back in the Renaissance and people began to learn that language, then you began to have people sitting down with books and it was the invention of, get this, silent reading. We, we, all we pretty much do is silent reading, right? That's, that's commonplace to us. But that was a, a unique and new thing in world history the invention of silent reading, like reading to yourself in your head. And it was, it was revolutionary and it changed literature and all this stuff. I think the exact same thing is interesting, but in reverse, that we, we should be speaking more prayers out loud in community, but we're so trapped in an internal world, in a silent reading world, that we don't really speak our prayer words out. Um, the Psalms... They were meant to be sung. They were meant to be sung in community. Um, this is God's prayer book teaching us how to pray, how to speak words back to God. Uh, the Psalms of Ascent, a big chunk of about 20 of these in the middle of the book of Psalms were the specific songs that would be sung as people were going up to Jerusalem. And so every year you would hear and, and take part in singing the exact same songs. Your children would learn these traditions, would learn to sing these songs so that they got in their heads. And during the year, they'd wake up in the morning and this would be going through their head like, like some kind of, uh, you know, the, back in the 90s, it was achy, breaky heart. I don't know what it was in the 2000s, you know, but the song that gets stuck in your head. Um, anyone know what it was like in the last 10 years, the song that gets stuck in your head? Yell it out if you think of it, because I'm curious. Um, and so these prayers, these psalms would get stuck in your head. Uh, and you get this interesting thing going where these are community songs. These are community prayers because there's something beautiful when we speak these or sing these together. Words have life. Uh, truth, the message of God, has life to it. And when we let those words fly, it's like letting seeds fly, and we can't control what really happens, but there's power there. And in time and over time, it will bring about fruit and a harvest. And so I want us, just in closing, um, we're going to read this. So if, if, if you want to stand, we're going to read the Lord's Prayer together. And it's going to be on the screen for you. But the bottom line is, we all feel helpless in this world. Listen to me now. There are things in your life that you feel helpless with. Relationships at work, relationships in the home, relationships in this community, relationships with the political fights that we get in. There are places we feel helpless and we have to walk out of here as the people of God realizing we are not helpless that when we try not to manipulate or control or get transactions or to win, but when we're just gonna be the bringers of good news, speaking words of life, we have power. We're the sower of seeds. And so when you walk out of here, whatever area of life it is in, whether you do it by way of sharing the good news, whether you do it by way of blessing someone, affirming someone, and just walking away, or whether you do it by way of prayer or worship and say, I'm gonna sing the song that other people are singing that we feel helpless, but we know we're not because when we are weak, we are strong in Christ. When we, we, when we let these words fly, this idea that we are bringing life into the world, we are the people of God. We are supposed to go out living victorious lives knowing, knowing that there's power in what we say 
in what we do. So this is the Lord's Prayer. It's the Episcopalian version, the official version, also the official version of the Catholic Church if you take off the doxology at the end. Some of you will know it by heart. But let's sing this, say this um, as a congregation. So our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.